I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. This is the parable of the sower, and um, like a lot of parables of Jesus, it can be hard to understand. It can be, but here's the cool thing about what we're doing today. As we go through the parable of the sower, it's like a key for understanding a lot of the parables of Jesus. It gives us some tools for unpacking a lot of the things Jesus says in parable. Parables here are like riddle type sayings where it's, it's all metaphor. It's all spoken in metaphorical language. And so we're learning from that. So if you think that the words of Jesus are sometimes hard to understand, you're not alone. And I think it was on purpose. And uh, we're going to look into those things, and today's study should help. Um, I remember when I first read this parable, um, I thought, step one, I read through the sower. The sower sows the seed, and there's these different, you know, types of soil and the crop and the result of the seed. It's like a farming parable. And I read through it and thought, I have no idea what this is about. I remember for the first time reading it, you know, on Monday. Um, I'm just kidding. I was much younger. And I I was like, I have no idea what this is about. And then I read on and the disciples were like, we have no idea what this is about. And Jesus then explains the parable. And I got all excited. I thought, oh, he explains this parable. And that's what we're going to get into today um, is not only the teaching of it, but the explanation of it. Um, And check this out, what Jesus said about this specific parable. He said in Mark 4, 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all parables? If you don't understand this parable, you're going to have a hard time understanding any parables. It's the one parable he explains, meaning that we can learn principles for all parables from our interpretation of this one parable. And what we'll be doing in this Mark series over the next few weeks is we'll be going over some more parables of Jesus. So this is the beginning of the parabolic journey, we shall call it, and the Mark series. This is the Mark series part Thirteen, starting in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. I'm just going to read straight through verse to verse 20. Here's the whole section. Let's get in our minds. Um, we're, we're here just trying to absorb it all um, and then study it more carefully after that. So Mark 4, verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. This is the Sea of Galilee, by the way, still near Capernaum at the Sea of Galilee. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell by the road and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. After the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about this parable, or about the parables, excuse me, in verse 11. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may not see, or they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? 
How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the sea was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. Okay, so what I want to do as as I was even in my prep of listening to different teachers talk through the the this this parable and sometimes they're covering the part that is the most obvious stuff and they're going on it for on and on and on. So I was thinking, let me just skip the most obvious things, right? I, I don't want to cover that. I want to sort of talk about the more interesting things that you might not notice um, as you're looking through this passage. So um, we will get into the simple, but we'll also, I'll try not to bore you. Um, the Bible's not boring, but sometimes teachers are. <laughs> so, uh, so I'll try to avoid that. Uh, so I'll try not to just point out all the obvious. We're going to go a little bit deeper. So we get the basic idea. Most of us understand this. There's four soils, and these represent four different kinds of people who are hearing the word of God, right? They're hearing like the gospel. Um, how they respond has to do with their hearts and their lives. And the condition of their heart dictates the way they respond. The seed is the same each time, but the person's heart's different. And so they respond based on their heart. There's a few dangers we want to watch out for. The first danger is in the first soil hard and unreceptive soil where the seed doesn't penetrate it doesn't get in at all and this is like a person who has a hard heart and they don't receive the word at all it simply doesn't penetrate not because anything's wrong with the word they are so resistant they're unreceptive they're unwilling this is perhaps the kind of person where if you ask them like if christianity were true would you follow jesus and they go i don't know about that and you're like yeah well see that would be that hard soil that um resistant soil the second kind of soil is shallow. It's, uh, or I should say, the roots go shallow because there's rocks in the soil. And so the roots can't penetrate deeply. And this person, they have shallow faith. as They hear the word, but they have like a shallow kind of faith. And it's killed by suffering or by persecution. There's two different issues. Either they go through some kind of suffering in life, and then they fall away. How could God allow this to happen in my life kind of thing? Hey, we all ask that question. We all ask the question. The question is, what do you do when you ask the question? These ones fall away because their faith was only skin deep. It was about their experiences in life instead of their being rooted in the truth of God's word, where they realize the hope there is beyond the suffering they experience. Or they suffer persecution, another type of suffering, a specific one. They're being ridiculed or attacked because of their faith in Christ. And they're like, I don't want that. This ain't worth it. This just isn't worth it to me. I was fine when I was being raised in the church, but when I got into this environment where they were hostile to my Christianity, I said, I don't, I don't want it. I'm going to be, I'm going to hide. Um, so they fall away. Uh, the third kind of soil is the materialistic person or the worldly desire person. This is like a soil where it's received, but there's like thorns and weeds. So instead of rocks in the soil, there's other things soaking up the nutrients of the soil. This person's heart is given over to other things, not God's word, not the truth of Christ. 
They're not yielded to God. Their love isn't for God first. There's all these other loves, other things in their life. And so they're described as a materialistic type person. Um, what we want to do then is we want to avoid all of those types of things. I want to avoid being that hard soil. I want to avoid being that rocky soil where I don't take in deep the eternal truths that I'm learning. Instead, I just surfacey receive the, the gospel of Christ, whatever I mean by that. I fall away. I don't want to be having materialistic or worldly desires, not even always ungodly desires. I don't want to have those things, though, choking out the fruitfulness of the word in my life. I want to be the good soil, the receptive soil, the, the soil that's broken up and it fully receives the things that God is giving in, in, you know, to me and doing in my life. I, um, I want to really receive and know Christ, not just know things about Jesus, but know Christ, right? I want this to go deep in my life. So that's like the big overview of it. But now I want to back up and go 1 through 20, chapter 4. We're going to go through these verses one more time, a little more slowly, think about it a little more carefully, and I hope that you find this a big blessing. Because I think the parable of the sower is, every time I read it, it applies not only to when I'm witnessing or evangelizing, to the way people receive it, but it also applies to the condition of my own heart, because I see all these same issues springing up even in my life as a Christian. I see the same kinds of issues. So Mark chapter 4, verse 1, And he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. Um, there's actually a, an area uh, up just to the west, from my perspective, it's this way from you guys, it's be this way, of Capernaum, towards the top of the Sea of Galilee. Here's like Capernaum over here, and then a little bit on you're looking at it this way. Over here, there's a little area they call Sower's, Sower's Cove, I think is what it's referred to as. Sower's Cove? Sower's something. Sower's Cove? I think it's Cove. You can look it up online. You can Google it. You can actually see a picture of it. It's kind of a natural amphitheater. It's like a little bump where the, the lake kind of bumps into the land a little bit. It may be that, that Jesus pulled out into the boat with that little area around him as like a natural sort of amphitheater, the people surrounding him. Um, this is, again, a crowd being a mixed blessing. There's just a lot of people, and so he's in the boat, and then they're on the land. This may have provided some natural acoustics, just kind of a smart thing to do, uh, because if people are all crowding right up in your face, nobody hears you, but if they back up a little bit from you, then everybody can hear you. You know, it's just kind of the way it is. All right, so verse 2, it says, And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching. Um, Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to... Since we've already discussed the overview of this passage, I'm going to take chapter or verses 1 through 20 and I'm going to like take them and interlace them as we study them right now. So like where he gives a, a part of the parable and he then explains it, I'm going to take the explanation and put it alongside. So we're going to read it like that. We're going to read a soil and the explanation together. That's how we're going to do it. Um, he's teaching them parables though. Um, the first thing we're going to interlace is verse 10 through 12. We're connecting that to verse 2. Hopefully this isn't confusing. And it, so it says, And he was teaching them many things in parables, and he was saying to them in his teaching. Now pause. What else did he say about the fact that he was using parables? What about Jesus' use of parables? Well, it's in verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So Jesus' use of parables, it, this is a beginning moment. He wasn't doing it in the beginning, it seems, of his teaching. It's like a certain shift happens. This is, notice, after major opposition coming from leaders in Jerusalem. There's different reactions from the crowd. He's already done great miracles and stuff. And then it's like now he shifts over to parable mode. 
And this seems to be what's going on as we even look at the other Gospels. It seems like there's a shift to parable. And Jesus explains the shift to parable. Now, I've heard many say that the reason why Jesus taught in parables is because it's memorable. Well, and, that, and it's true that parables are memorable. You remember the parable of the prodigal son and how easily and quickly you bring it up. And, you, and so there, there may be truth to that. I've heard others say that good teachers tell stories and Jesus was a good teacher. And I think, well, I may, I'm not a very good teacher because I tell very few stories, actually. I'm just not a very good storyteller, to be honest, so I just don't worry about it. Um, I'm an explainer. It's kind of like my, my, my whole shtick is I just explain things all the time. Um, but but the, uh, the fact that he was just telling stories because he's a good teacher doesn't make a whole lot of sense of the idea that he didn't do it and then he did do it at a certain point in his ministry. There's another thing people say, which is that a picture is worth a thousand words. And that's very true. And when you paint a picture with a parable, with a story, it teaches you things on a different level than when you just give it informationally. It really does. And so there is, there is a truth in there. Um, and, uh, and Jesus was trying to overturn constantly, overturn wrong expectations that they had about the Messiah. They didn't realize what the Messiah was going to do for them and who he was going to be. And some of these parables are helping to paint the real picture of the kingdom versus their vision for it. And so there's an element of truth there. But there's more, and it's right in Jesus' explanation. And he's like, yeah, I'm, and let me, let me paraphrase. Tell me if you think I'm being fair, verses 10 through 12. Paraphrase. I'm telling parables to confuse people. But you guys, I'll explain them to you, but not them. I mean, that's what he says, it seems. And there, there's another element that's not talked about perhaps as often as it should be, which is that Jesus uses parables, in a sense, as judgment on rebellious people. That seems to be the case. He uses parables in, in one sense. One of the reasons is judgment on rebellious people. Now, God did this with Ezekiel in the past. This isn't even new. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 49, Ezekiel complains. Here's the, here's the things they say about Ezekiel. Because if you read Ezekiel, you're like, yeah, there's some tough to understand things. Right? And they thought the, they thought the same thing. There's some things they didn't get. Well, here's what they said about Ezekiel in Ezekiel 20, 49. Then I said, ah, Lord God, they're saying of me, is he not just speaking parables? Ezekiel, he's just, it's all just allegory and riddles and confusing, confusing things. And Ezekiel's like, Lord, you give me these messages and they're thinking they're parables. And look at what, what else Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 33 verse 32. God says to, to Ezekiel, Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. Ezekiel was bringing warnings of coming judgment and they just liked the way he talked. And they were like, tell us more, talk more, but they didn't hear the message. And so Ezekiel's, there's a sense of frustration. You hear, but you don't hear. You, you like the idea, you think I'm a real prophet of God, so you want to hear me speak. And there's some like this, they'll even go to a church and they're going to hear like a, a leader who's really bringing the truth of God, the word of God, and they sit every week and they hear about the condemnation of sin. They hear about their state before God and how they need Jesus Christ. And they walk out feeling totally encouraged, but they're not even believing in Jesus. There's just sometimes you hear and you don't hear. And it's a spiritual condition. Um, now, Ezekiel, unlike Jesus, though, he would often offer his parables and his sort of riddle-type things, and then he would explain them. He would do something weird, like lay on his side, and then he would tell everybody why. I'm doing this because you're all going to be in judgment for this many days, and this is going to happen. Jesus, however, rarely explained the parables, and we rarely have record of him doing so. So I'm going to say this, is that sometimes Jesus, and this is consistent, I, I see this in John, I see this with Christ, he treats people 
like they've already made a decision about him before they even met him. He does this in John. He's like, you don't come to me because you don't know my father. It's like it's, it's already happened. Oh, they, they have Moses. Let them hear him. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. So he, it's, he's saying it's like you already made choices. It's like the Jewish people, they have the word of God. They've got this, the, the ground has been tilled, so to speak, sown into by the word of God. And they should have known who Christ was already. And so the parabolic movement, the movement to parables is like saying, look, you're rejecting me. So now hearing, you won't hear. So does that make sense? It's, it's, a, it's like an act of judgment on rebellious people. Let me give you some, um, let me see. I, I read this example, John 5, 38. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who, whom he sent. That's an interesting phrase. Jesus says of, of the people of Israel at the time, he goes, the ones who were rejecting him, he goes, you, you don't have God's word abiding in you right now. Why do I say that? Because you're not believing the one God sent. If you had already received God's word truly, you would have received me too. When he shows up, he reveals what kind of soil they are. You are already missing out on the word of God. In John 8, 42, um, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I, uh, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. By the way, to a Jewish mindset, He's like, I came from, like you're saying you're not just a human? Well, yes, that's exactly it. You're not, you came from God. That's like a powerful theological statement. But he's like, hey, if God was your father, you would have believed me. It's just, that's just how it works. I'm revealing what kind of soil you are. I'm revealing what kind of condition you have before God. Jesus did this to Nicodemus too. We actually see how much he did this sort of thing. Um, John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered to him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right, who came to Jesus by night. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I mean, that was like a riddle to Nicodemus. And I think Jesus intended it to be. Now, he'll explain more. But think about how it hit his ears. It wasn't like this carefully, easily explained thing. It was like something to reveal something's wrong with Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And you can almost hear him laughing. That's ridiculous. This is insane. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes, uh, where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? It's just, it, and it does, it's confusing. It's not like you can't understand it, but it is naturally confusing. It's like you have to really think about it. And go, what does it mean? And take other things Jesus taught to, to unpack and understand it. By itself, you go, huh? And Jesus responds and says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? See, the parable is revealing that you don't know what you think you know. That's one of the things that's, that's happening here. So I think that the parables, it's not strictly just to cause confusion. You could get that impression. I think it's to reveal rebellion. I'm going to use the parable to reveal your rebellion against God. This is a hard teaching. In John 6, Jesus tells them, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they're like, this is a hard teaching. He tells them way later, hey, my words are spirit. I'm speaking spiritually. But, he, but it's too late, right? And then they, they leave. Many depart from him at that point. He's revealing their rebellion. It's, it's the shrinking of the crowd didn't shrink the numbers of genuine disciples there. It just shrunk the crowd. That's kind of at least how I view it. 
Um, so it's a shift to parables after he's done miracles and more plain teachings that have already been heard and decisions have been made about Jesus. Um, now, just remember the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we're accountable for what we hear. And now he shifts to parables. And so for those who are going to be on the inside, who are going to really truly follow, they're going to get more details. For those who are not, they're going to get less. Um, that's the idea. So verse 13, we get this. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So how exactly is this parable the key to understand all the parables? It's exciting to me. I'm like, this is pretty cool. Well, I think there's actually maybe two ways. Two ways this parable could be a key. One, it's interpreted. Jesus interprets it. So it gives us like a pattern of how we would interpret parables. Like when they, when they found the um, um, Rosetta Stone. I'm not talking about the software. I'm talking about the Rosetta Stone, the actual stone, right? Where it had, it had multiple languages. It had like uh, ancient uh, Egyptian like hieroglyphs on it. It had Greek. It had some other, I think it had two other languages on it. And they were able to use this to decipher Egyptian. And because they realized this word corresponds to that Greek word here, that's what that Egyptian word is. And they sort of unravel the Egyptian language. That was like the key, the key piece for it. So here we go. We have these other parables that aren't explained, but we have one that is. So we can use the principles there. And here's some of the principles. Um, it's about the gospel in some sense. It's about the kingdom of God in some sense. The parables all do seem to relate to the kingdom. Another principle would, would be this. And this is where I think other leaders would even disagree with me here. So take this with a grain of salt. This is my opinion. I could be wrong. I just noticed that each element of the parable has some corresponding reality to it. The different soils... The rocks, they represent something. The, the thorns, the weeds, they represent something. The packed earth represents something. The crow or the birds represent something. They all represent something specific. That's very interesting to me. Some people will, will say parables, we shouldn't look for each of the element of the parable to represent something. That we should only look for a basic overall idea and don't try to find corresponding things. But the example where we have an interpretation has each one representing something. So I'm just saying that my understanding is that we should then maybe look for something to correspond. Now, don't just guess and don't just be dogmatic because you guessed and you like your ideas. Maybe you read a parable and you go, I don't know what this corresponds to. I get the main point, but I don't know what the pieces are. Oh, well, I just don't know. But uh, that doesn't mean they aren't there. Uh, as we do more parables, we'll try to apply that principle as you do more parables in coming weeks. Uh, there's another way, though, that understanding this parable gives us a key to unlocking all parables, and that's just that parables were presented because of the hardness of people's hearts. It's seeing they may not see, hearing they may not hear, and the parable itself relates to that concept, doesn't it? The soils that are hard, the soil where it chokes out, the, the different soils that go on. So as different soils receive the word differently, so different people receive the parables differently. The application that I have is, that tough teachings reveal hearts. Tough teachings reveal hearts. And that's what I think I see consistently, not only in scripture, but just in real life. There are people who abandon Christianity because of some tough teaching that we find in the text of scripture. And they go, I just don't like it. I don't like that. And, then, and now there's, I know there are Christians who go, I don't like that, but I trust the Lord. I yield to his sovereignty and his wisdom. Who am I? Okay, maybe there's something I've read that I don't, maybe I don't understand it. Maybe I have the wrong perspective on it. Maybe I'm confused. Those are the options they look at, right? Others who say, no, I'm out of here. And um, that's unfortunate. I think that tough teachings reveal hearts. They reveal our hearts because they challenge our trust in the Lord. And they challenge our pride um, and other issues like that. 
So these parables are received or rejected um, like the gospel is based on how the heart responds to it. So the parables themselves are like testing the soil of people's hearts. So that could be the other parallel there. And that's where he switches to parables. So that's kind of a complicated thing. Maybe I don't explain it very well, but let's move on to things I might explain better. Uh, Verse 3. It says, listen to this. Behold, a sower went out to sow. The sower went out to sow. The first question is, who is the sower? Well, verse 14, we jump forward. We're going to interlace the verses, right? Verse 14, Jesus says, the sower sows the word. This is the easiest Bible study I've ever taught. The sower sows the word. Problem solved, right? The sower sows the word. Who then is the sower? You could say it's Jesus. Well, it just seems more generic than that. It seems whoever is giving out the word, whoever that is, they're just sowing the word. So I think anyone who shares the word or the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, they're the sower in this case. So this applies to you. If you're ministering to someone else, you're witnessing, you're sharing truth, then you're, you're the one who's sowing in that environment, in that moment. Um, the seed, though, this, not, the sower is, is generic, but the seed's not. The seed's specific. It's the word. It's the word. So I would just say this. Just make sure that when you're sowing seed, you're sowing the word, not something else. I'm resisting the temptation to do the Susie sells seashells down by the seashore. It's like a tongue twister doing some of these, these things. But the sower sows the word, and we ought to, we ought to sow the word and make sure that in, in our presentation of the gospel, it's a biblical gospel. It's like the actual truth of scripture that we're giving out to people. Or else when people react, what are they reacting to? It's not us. Or it's not the gospel. It's us. Or it's our false misunderstanding. Um, yeah. Then verse 4. As he was sowing, some seed fell by the, beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Now, this is where we get real specific details, right? So verse 15 explains... These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So a couple elements. Uh, They're beside the road. Uh, This beside the road area is like that hard packed ground near the road, near the walkways and the byways and all that kind of thing. So it's hard packed ground. The seed can't penetrate in. And so this represents the heart of a person that's just hard. They're stubborn. There's just a stubbornness in their attitude, not towards everything in the world, but their attitude towards God, their attitude towards receiving the things that God is trying to tell them. Humility, perhaps, um, receptivity to what God's doing. Um, So the seed doesn't even penetrate. The word doesn't even click for them. Um, It's robbed by Satan. Satan steals it away. It's interesting how Satan's involved in their lives. But the people are like goldfish. At least I've heard, I don't know if this is true, I should fact check this, but I've heard that goldfish have a really short memory. It's like a few seconds long or something. So that if they have a big enough fish tank, they can swim from one side to the other to check out what's over there. And then, and then by the time they get there, they're like, wait, what's on the other side? <laughs> so they can just do that all day and they're constantly entertained. They're probably the most entertained fish out there. Um, so they're like, they're like Dory from Finding Nemo. That's, now, I don't know if that's true, but I think that I've seen people have this attitude that's like that goldfish kind of concept towards the gospel. Where it's like, I know I've told you this before. And they don't know. And they can't remember. And they can't retain it. And um, I don't think necessarily that every, everyone with this hard soil is actually forgetting. They're actually forgetting the actual information. But they certainly are forgetting the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're forgetting the imminence, the, the, the need to repent. There's something forgetful going on. I wonder too, though, um, if misunderstanding the gospel is a normal quality in those who reject the gospel. Because at while I wouldn't generalize everybody at all, it does seem to me that there's a really large percentage or large amount 
of skeptics and I, I mean especially like on Twitter like it's like I'm followed by some I'm glad they follow me actually some a lot of atheists and I mean like anti-Christian atheists on Twitter um, you know I post something encouraging and they post something mocking this is part of, this is the game we play and uh, and I'm glad that they're there I'm glad that they're following because they can see the things I share and I hope that it ministers to them and hope it's opening a door in their lives but what's interesting to me though is how often the, the, the skeptics, at least that I engage with, they don't actually understand the gospel. And I mean it in a genuine sense. And they're going to feel insulted. This isn't about intelligence level. It's like if I said, you don't really know the gospel, they would immediately repeat word for word like a Greg Laurie gospel presentation, right? Like they could do that. But wait until they restate the gospel and you're not around. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, it was just gospel thing. Like, uh... Uh, what if, if I'm not a good enough person, God, you know, I've, only good people go to heaven kind of thing and, and, and everyone's bad and stuff like that. And, and you, you hear the way they restate it and you start to wonder, do you really even know? Do you, do you really know? They, oh, God had to kill him, die, kill himself and die to God. And why, how do they put it? There's this, there's this whole spiel that I hear skeptics do with the gospel. God had to, um, God was mad at us. And so he had to, to, had to sacrifice himself to himself for and it's this where you're like there's elements of that that have truth to it but it's just such a butchering of the gospel that I wonder what's going on in the heart because if I was not a believer I would at least look at the gospel and say it's a pretty loving God and a pretty beautiful message I think that I'd objectively look at it and say that compared to like say information I get from say Islam or Buddhism or these other different religions I'd look at this and see the love of God manifested in the cross of Christ. But the mockery makes me feel like they honestly don't understand. Um, and maybe I'm wrong there, but that's the impression I get. Um, yeah. So Satan, it says, takes away the sea, this type of person. Um, Satan here in the parable is like the birds. Um, I want to be careful here, though. This doesn't mean that every time the Bible refers to birds, they're evil. Nor does this mean that if you come out of your house and there's like, crows on your you know on the telephone poles that like evil is haunting you like that's not the point of the parable (laughs) slow down like that's not we're not here to be superstitious this is a parable it's just i mean yes um it's just a parable okay um like if you see weeds in your yard it doesn't mean that you love the world (laughs) any more than birds mean that satan is hounding you um so i don't want to go too far with this but Satan here refers to the birds. In Mark 8.33, Jesus does something interesting with Peter. We'll get there eventually. But it says, turning around and seeing his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. There's, there's a sense in which those who are living apart from God are under the control of Satan, whether they like it or not. Not like knowingly. It's not like they get away from you and they're like secretly like, he, 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 I'm really serving Satan and they don't know. I mean, no. It's more like they're really serving Satan and they don't know. And they don't know. Um, it's, it's, we watched Pinocchio not long ago, me and Allison. I don't know if you guys have seen the original Pinocchio. It's a weird movie, man. I, thought, I saw it as an adult. Just recently we were like, this is a weird movie. Even Jiminy Cricket's kind of like not a really good character in this film, you know? And um, 
Anyway, they go to this island where they're where they think they're going to party, and they're really being brought into bondage. They're going to be turned into these donkeys to serve, and and I just think that's actually a really good parable picture for what we get when we rebel against God, and we think we're going to get freedom, but we get bondage instead. And that's how Satan's the sort of the puppet master of the world. The world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's the god of this age, Scripture says, and um, he prefers to be the silent partner. It seems in most people's lives. So that's one version of the soil. They utterly reject the gospel, um, not necessarily angrily, but utterly. They just, that's good for you. I'm glad you have that. That's nice. It's nice. And you obviously need that, but, you know, I'm good. Uh, whatever their rejection is. Then in verse 5, it says, Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. No depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And verse 16 is where we, we interlace the explanation. Verse 16, Jesus says, In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Wow. They receive it with joy. This, I mean, it sounds like someone's getting saved here. Or at least they look like they are, right? At least to humans, it would look like they were saved for sure. Verse 17, And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. They're excited. They're excited about the message. They're like joyous. They're happy about this this gospel message, the truth that Christ saves me from sin, that I can be washed of my sin and be right with God and have a relationship with God. They get excited. But what we learn from this soil is your immediate reaction to the gospel isn't as important as your long-term reaction to the gospel. They don't stick around. Affliction arises. Affliction or suffering arises. And or persecution because of the word. Those are the two issues. So let's deal with each of them one at a time. Affliction. This is this is this is a big deal in our lives. We go through crazy trials. I I'm willing to bet that all of us have gone through stuff that you just didn't even conceive would ever happen to you. And it was just like I can't even believe I'm experiencing this. This is not something I was ready for. This kind of trial, this kind of hardship. I just had no idea. Life has trials that seem nonsensical. Can't figure out what's going on. I have no theory as to what God's doing through this trial. I don't even have a theory. I don't even want to theorize. I'm just tired thinking about it. These kinds of things. We go through this kind of stuff. So I have compassion on others who are going through crazy trials and it causes them to question their faith in God or their faith in Christ. I totally have compassion. But it may be that those who abandon their trust in Christ in the middle of those trials, they're revealing that they were the, the rocky soil and that their faith was only this deep. So that when they dug deep to have that root hold, in, that, hold the plant in, hold their faith in place, there was just nothing holding it in place because... They really thought that if they trusted in Christ, this sort of thing won't happen to them. And they were never told that. Not in Scripture. In Scripture, it's the opposite. Is God preparing us for trials? Getting us ready for the horrible things of life that are going to come our way. He prepares us for it. He's like, chin up, right? Gird up the loins of your mind and rest your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not you're going to be fine. You will prosper. You will be okay. Your kids will be great. Your job will be good. Your health will be great. 
No, that's not the case. And so when I go through hard times and it, I feel it testing my faith, it's as though someone's grabbing that plant and yanking on it to see how deep the roots are. And if the roots are deep and you're deep in Christ, and I don't just mean in some sort of vague spiritual sense. I mean, you don't just think God will bring you blessings today. You know that the gospel of Christ is about eternal life with Christ. And that's where your hope is, not just in this present moment. Then the roots are deep. And then you go, even though things are this bad, and even if they were worse, it'll make, it'll mess me up, it'll shake me. But this is what my faith is for. This is what it's all about. So that these afflictions come and it doesn't cause me to give up and quit. Listen to this. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, talking, I think, about this same issue. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance. And listen to how he talks about what we've gotten, what we get through our faith, what we get through Jesus. An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, you don't have it now. The inheritance is a future thing. And this is what we have. This is what we're rejoicing in. It's our future, not our present. We're rejoicing in our future. He goes on. Um, that Who are protected, this is us, we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's this future revelation of all the blessings that you have in Christ. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Tell me that's not talking to you. You just Are you distressed by various trials? Yes, but what do you rejoice in? That inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, which is reserved in heaven for me, that will be revealed in the last time. That's where the roots go deep. It's about eternal life, not just better existence on earth. He goes on and tells us what the trials do. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. This is why we're going through trials, or at least one of the reasons for the trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials show you what kind of soil you are. And if you fall away, if you find that you your faith is hanging by a desperate thread, then guess what? And I'm not saying this to be rude, because I have been there. That means that your faith was always hanging by a desperate thread. And you just found out. It's time to go deeper in trust. It's time to go deeper in Christ and put your hope in eternal things and not just in present things. That's what I see in scripture. I think it's so relevant for our lives and I think the parable brings that out. But that's just one of the issues, right? The other issue is persecution. Persecution is the other thing that can cause it. It's related, but it's different. Persecution is not the same as just affliction. Persecution is, is coming something painful bad coming at me because I'm a Christian. Like my life's not just going through normal life trials. No, no, I'm suffering because I'm a believer. Um, and I'll just say this, is you can see how tightly you hold to something when someone tries to rip it out of your hands. And that's persecution. Trying to rip your faith out of your hands. Now, some of you have been genuinely persecuted and other ones are like, not really, you know. Um, others have experienced a different kind of, I, I would, it's like a persecution, I mean, but the shunning of family or friends because you're following Jesus Christ, um, experience that. Being on the outs with people that you love, um, that's a different kind of thing. It's not like someone's coming after me with a gun, but uh, I've been there. 
And so many of you know that kind of thing as well. Uh, here's what First Peter also says about that. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. I love that Peter, he, he knows they're going through persecution. He writes to them, they're, they're suffering. And he's like, don't act like this is weird. But, but I love the Lord, why am I suffering? He's like, what's wrong with your theology that you think this is strange? That's, that's the real message here. Like, what is tripping about your theology that you think Jesus who goes to the cross and dies for your sin and gives you a model to take up your cross and follow him, what that really means is, don't worry, you won't suffer. Just follow Jesus and everything will be perfectly fine in your life. Like, what? how do you translate the cross of Christ into your best life now? Like, doesn't, no, this isn't, this isn't what it is about. Don't think it's a weird thing, he says. Verse 13, he goes on, but to, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Peter's talking about a mentality where you, where you recognize I'm being persecuted and you go, I'm not happy about the pain, but I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ now. And I rejoice for that because he's so worth suffering with. I rejoice in it. And then he goes on, so that you also, at the revelation of his glory, may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because, of the, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, Peter does not write this like he's some ivory tower preacher, right? Like he's like writing from his palace in Rome or something like that, right? He's not. And he's not sending this message out like, oh, for you normal people who are suffering, don't, don't just glory in it, you're blessed. Peter's writing this as a man who has suffered great persecution and great loss for the name of Christ. And so when he says, you're blessed, you better believe he understands this and, and he knows it's true. And I'm just saying, if you don't yet know that you can say, while being persecuted, I'm blessed because I'm suffering for the name of Christ. And when his glory is revealed, it, it, my, my faith will be confirmed even more. Um, then that's where the roots need to go deep. That's where the roots need to go deep. So persecution's a revealer of how deeply we've received Christ how deeply we've received Christ. And when persecution hits a whole church, a whole group of Christians, it seems to have this effect on them, I think. Um, I heard a story of a, of a man who, uh, it was, he was somewhere in, uh, in Europe. I can't remember the country he was from, but it was, he was sharing the testimony. Their church had come under fire, literal fire. Someone set their church on fire and they were going through persecution and it became actually dangerous to go to church. So people had to actually ask themselves, you know, to go to fellowship, am I going to risk getting hurt and he said their fellowship shrunk and at the same time as it shrunk it grew because those who did come were it was just such sweet fellowship and such sweet time of worship and time in the word and time in prayer because it was like these are just a room full of people whose roots are deep and so it was an element where persecution causes some to fall away because their roots were always shallow and they were not actually that much of a blessing uh, to the other Christians around them. It's sad. I, it, the sad part is their roots were shallow. That's the sad part. But what's interesting too is the disciples, they actually did this. It seems to me the disciples are this soil right here. Um, and I could be wrong here, but I think they are. And here's why. In Mark chapter 14, same book, tells us that they fell away. And they fell away, why? Because of persecution. 
Mark 14, verse 27, and Jesus said to him, said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Oh, but they did, didn't they? And that's exactly what this thing did. The persecution comes, the soil persecution comes and they fall away. It says, that's the word used, they fall away. So this is not like a permanent, in, your life is over, you fell away. It's like, nope, you learned a lesson. Your faith was shallow. Now get the rocks out and let the roots go deep and take in the word of Christ deeply and care about eternal things and not just the shallow things that you were worried about so far. So they did come back and when they came back, their faith was deep, wasn't it? The disciples. And they were willing to die, willing to die joyously. Think of that. Um, And that was their mentality. Wow. Um, Okay, verse 7 in Mark... Chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Other seed, we'll go to the next seed on the list, or next uh, soil on the list. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. So this is a really interesting seed. It's just, it, it, we don't know if it's alive or dead. We don't know what's, it just yields no crop. It yields no crop. This is verse 18, where Jesus explains it. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns, and these are the ones who have heard the word, But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, that's two things. And the third one is, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So in some sense, they receive the word. Are they saved? Are they not saved? I don't know. We'll talk a little bit more about that after we've gone through all the soils. Um, But in some sense, they've received the word and they have three different things that cause them problems. And I think if we look at them individually, we can learn something about our lives, you know, from these things. The first one that causes problems is the worries of the world. The worries or the desires, the concerns of the world, the things the world's worried about. What could that be? Well, I think in Matthew 6, Jesus explains to us what he means by the worries of the world. So I'm just going to read straight through. Here's Jesus for you, unedited, uh, as he always should be. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 34, you know the passage, but think about this. What does this tell me about the worries of the world? He says in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Do not be worried about your life. Notice that word worried. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? You can actually take some away, I think. (laughs) And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink 
or what will we wear for clothing? Four, the Gentiles eagerly seek all those things. Remember the question was, what are the worries of the world? The desires of the world. Well, he says the Gentiles, let's say the rest of the world, they're all thinking, they're all worried about these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So I think that there's a bunch of elements in there and all that that hopefully just soaked it all up. Um, But that's the idea. The desires of the world are the things that are sort of the, um, the things that everyone's still worried about when they, when they don't, have God in their life at all. There's the desires of the world. And I'm not just talking about caring about loved ones. I'm talking about the, the practical stuff I want to have in my life and I'm worried about it, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. These are just the concerns. We have a greater focus. We're to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness above even our normal needs. I have, I have something to live for that's more important than me and more important than my life even. That's the idea. So... All this stuff is needful stuff, but it's secondary to the Christian. Lest our hearts wander from Christ as we obsess about secondary things. Uh, but, but we need more money. But I need, I need it's, it's just, a lot of it comes down to money and our desire for money and, and uh, our focus on that. The second thing you mentioned, other than the, the worries of the world, is the deceitfulness of riches. And I think that's a really interesting phrase because Jesus says that wealth is deceitful. Riches are deceitful. They lie to you. That's a really interesting idea. Now, I want to point out that biblically, riches aren't the problem. Money's not the problem. Love of money, that's a problem. Money itself's not a problem. Riches aren't a problem, but the deceitfulness of riches, that's a problem. These are different concepts. Riches, what, it, what happens with riches is they lie to me. Like I see someone who's wealthy, someone who's doing good, and I, and I believe all these things about them that aren't even true. And the riches lie to me. What's the lie that they tell? Luke 12, 15 says this. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. The sense of fulfillment that I'll get if I get more stuff. That's the thing to worry about. And you might be like, come on, man, this is like 101, church 101. Like, I know this. It's materialism. Do you know it, though? That's the question. Like, do we really know it in our hearts? That that, that car or the, or the clothing or the house, the better house or the better paying job, like this is not going to be the thing that, can, that changes my life because my life does not consist of the things I possess. That's the idea. So it's the constant desire for more. Thinking or acting like the stuff, the materialism stuff is going to satisfy my soul, which obviously it cannot. And as many very disappointed rich people will tell you, yeah, this is just stuff. Riches just give me more options in life, but it's, that's it. You have more options in life than in someone else. That's it. Does not make your life better? Not in, the, not in the sense of the core of who you are. Now, the poor can have this deceitfulness of riches just as much as the rich can. And I've seen this too. I've seen poor people who are obsessed with wealth. And it's sad. They got the bad end of, both, the, bad end of the stick on both sides, or two bad ends of the stick, whatever the analogy is I'm trying to come up with. <laughs> they have the two-ended stick. And both sides of this, no, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. Um, but, but I've seen poor people too who are obsessed with wealth, obsessed with the fact that they're poor and they're just constantly bitter and jealous at the wealthy. You're, you're, you're a materialist at that point, right? Like that's what that is. Like if I can't see some rich person and be like, boy, I'm glad they have wealth, then that means I've just got envy in my heart, right? Jealousy. 
selfishness, these types of things. So there's a there's a there's an issue that can happen to the poor or the rich. I love what Proverbs says, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. I'm gonna read this to you. It's just it's such a neat concept. He says, Keep deception, it's a prayer to God. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. God, I don't want to be poor and I don't want to be rich. Now I've heard lots of people say I don't want to be poor, but I've never heard anyone say I don't want to be rich. But the proverb says it, right? Because it's wise. I'll read on. Feed me with the food that is my portion, or in one translation, my daily bread. Just give me what I need to eat today, Lord. Um, that I may, uh, excuse me, then he tells them why. Here's the justification. I don't want to be poor, I don't want to be rich, I just want it to be taken care of daily. Verse 9, he says, that I, uh, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? So he's saying, I don't want to be rich and just forget about God because the deceitfulness of wealth has me thinking I'm satisfied when I'm really missing you. Or that I not be in want, poor, and steal and profane the name of my God. I want to avoid the temptations of that poverty, where you have extreme poverty, where you're like theft, and I want to, uh, or cheating, or lying, or trying to get some kind of ungodly hustle going on. I want to avoid that, Lord, because I don't want to sin against you there. But I also don't want to be rich because to the to the guy who wrote Proverbs, his relationship with God is more important than his wealth. Everything else in his life serves this relationship with God. That's the idea. So the the third thing is the desire the desire for other things, right? Worries the world, the um, deceitfulness of riches, and the the desire for other things. This is interesting because it's not even evil things; it's just other things. It doesn't say the desire for evil things; just other things. And this, I think, is where um, first world problems comes into play, because we have so much access to other things. You could be busy in your life from the time you wake up until the time you go to bed every single day with other things. Pick a hobby. There is a whole online community that you can dork out with for whatever hobby you got, right? Just pick one, right? Whatever it is. You want to play video games on your phone all day long? Go for it. You got that. It's available to you. It's hard to even be bored. As soon as you have free time, it's immediately filled up with, I don't know, just some kind of other things. And so this isn't necessarily sinful. I'm not even saying these things are bad. But it can be. Like it's possible that it chokes out the word and makes it unfruitful in my life. Hebrews 12.1 talks about how we have two issues that can affect us. Sin and weights. Weights, things that just weigh us down. Again, they're not even evil. They're just weights. Things that are just weighing me down. And so I've just got to be, this isn't really for me to tell you It's for you to tell yourself, for me to tell myself. It's like, evaluate my life and ask, are there things that aren't bad, but they're choking the fruitfulness of God's word in my life? They're not bad. They're just other things. There's nothing sinful about it. But I know it's having a negative impact on my focus on spiritual things, on my walk with God, perhaps, on my time in the word, my attention that I'm going to devote to my family, my faithfulness in some area of my life to God. Just in some way, you look at it and you go, you know, this just isn't having a great effect on me. And be sensitive to even your own spirit to be aware if that kind of thing comes up. Because this isn't about like, repent, it's a horrible sin. Sometimes it's just, it's just an other thing. And the desire for that other thing is, you realize, boy, man, that thing pulls on me hard. Right? Someone else, they don't even care about it, but me, it pulls on me hard. And that can be uh, potentially a bad thing. Um, so we can miss the point if we're just... We're like, well, everything's either sin or not sin. If it's sin, I avoid it. If it's not sin, I can do it as much as I want. And it's like, nope. Life is more organic than that. 
while it's true that every action is either a sin or not a sin, sometimes the not sins become sins because of their context in my life. Um, Psalm 17, uh, 14 has this phrase, which is, makes me think of just these three things. The desires for other things, the deceitfulness of riches, and the cares of the world. It says in Psalm 17, 14, uh, the request is that God would keep the psalmist away from men of the world whose portion is in this life. And that's the main focus, is that these, these people who are um, getting choked out, the thorns, the thistles, the weeds in their lives, are just your portions in this life. Your, your life is more about this life than it is about eternal life. That's the idea. That's the main focus, I think, that's going on there. And so what I have to do is be self-aware and then do some weeding. If you're that soil, you've got to do some weeding. Those things digging their roots down are, are too deep and you need to get those weeds out by the roots so that you can have space for the Lord to work in your life. Maybe even if you think something is maybe on this list, and you're not just being paranoid because some people are just paranoid. You think everything's a sin all the time. Everything you do is a sin. Even you, and then thinking that you did a sin, you think that's a sin too. It's like, it's like you know, you need, you need more calmness and grace and security in Christ. Like I'm not, this, this isn't even for you. You're looking at the wrong Bible study. <laughs> um, but if, that's, if, if it's you and you're saying that Maybe there's something in my life here that I think might be pulling on me too much and you're just being rational about it. Just try abstaining from it for a season. Just cut it out for a season and just see how it goes and see if that doesn't create space for fruit in your life uh, for God's kingdom. All right, verse 8, we read on. Other seed fell on the good soil and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And uh, And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then the interpretation of this is in verse 20. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now there's a progression through the soils. The first one doesn't really even receive at all. The second one receives it with joy, but there's no root, right? The third one receives it and it, it, the plant grows up. It does, we don't know for sure if it died or what in the story here, but it doesn't bear fruit. Uh, the last one, uh, the roots go down, the plant goes up, and the fruit comes out. It's like all of the above. It's the good soil. It's the good soil. They, re- they produce various levels of fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. And I find that a little irritating. Because I want, I want my life to be 100-fold, <laughs> not 30, not 60. I want it to be 100-fold. And the truth is God's just using, doing us all for different things. Um, what's interesting, though, is any of these options is considered an incredible fruit yield for a plant. 30-fold is a massive fruit yield. They're all massive fruit yields. 30, 60, they're just different fruit yields. And so it's good to not be like comparing yourself. This is what, I, I think, maybe, I don't know if it's more of a guy thing than a girl thing, but um, it took me a while in ministry to get to the point where I was not competitive in my heart. See someone else who's like, boy, they're a really great teacher. They love the Lord. And then I felt threatened because I'm a selfish, wicked person, to be honest, right? And it was like, it was a few years of doing ministry where I realized this mentality is keeping me from partnering with people who we could serve the Lord and do work, you know, serve the kingdom together. But I'm like, you know, I'm just being petty because I'm like threatened by their, their gifting or skill or, well, they have a hundredfold and I'm a thirtyfold person and I just don't want to be around them. You know, I want to admire them from afar, but I don't want them in the same room as me, you know, like that kind of thing. And um, anyway, that... To be just totally honest, that was just carnality on my part. And um, uh, and it took a while, but I just did that heart surgery of bringing it to the Lord and saying, like, yeah, if I can't rejoice 
in the fruit and the gifting that God's given them, then there's something wrong with me. And so that, you know, but now I'm perfect. Um, perfectly sinless, actually, in every way, except for pride. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not, but it was definitely an important lesson for me. Um, so there's different fruit, and it's, this isn't just about salvation. This is about fruit from lives of following Jesus. And I know, I know you do too, just like I do. I long to bear fruit to the Lord. I so want, um, I, I think unbelievers maybe don't get this about us sometimes, is that we like actually love the Lord because of the love he has for us. And we think if they know how much he loves them, they'll love him too. And they'll just want to serve him. And they'll just be like, Lord, just use me for anything. Why? Because it's for you. It's just for you, Lord. I, and I still have that like kitty feel in my heart about ministry and service to the Lord. And I think that that's a normal Christian thing. I think that's where most of us are at, you know, where you're like, I got to do it for the Lord. Like, it's personal. It's not just a task. It's for him. And that's, it's exciting. Um, so, yeah. Um, question. Were they saved? Did they lose their salvation? Like, what's the story with these soils? This is something that I think about and I think others think about and I don't have the perfect answer for you. I'm just going to give you a few thoughts as you're trying to work through this. Um, The first soil, were they saved? No. They clearly rejected the gospel itself, the word. They rejected it. They're clearly not saved. The second soil, the second soil is in Mark, you read about it and it doesn't seem like it's pushing that they were saved. They heard it. They received it with joy, but we're not sure if that means that they were saved or if they just received it with joy. Luke says it a little bit different. In Luke chapter 8, verse 12, it says that those beside the road are those who've heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm backing up. I'm talking about the first soil. But look at what it says. So that they will not believe and be saved. So in Luke, when the, when the, when the seed's taken away from the first soil, it's so that they will not what? Believe and be saved. This implies that the belief is related to salvation. Then in verse 13, the next verse, it says this about the second soil. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear the word, or when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root, they believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, fall away. That's interesting. Um, did they, is it saying they lost their salvation? I don't know. And I'm not sure if that's the point of what's going on in the parable is to even answer this question for us. They certainly appeared to be saved and then fell away. I think we can all agree there. And we all know people like this who appeared to be saved and then now they're not walking with Christ. And you're like, okay, I, I can, we can all affirm they appeared to be saved. Were they really, really saved? I don't know, but there's the information from Luke. That's kind of the pivotal passage that I think people would bring up is Luke seems to imply that belief brings salvation and he says they believe for a while. So what's going on here? And um, I personally am not 100% sure. Um, the third soil um, they may, may, may well just be unfruitful and actually saved. And, you know, First Corinthians talks about our fruit will be tested. And yet, even if the fruit is burned up, the works are burned up, yet he is saved. The person's still saved. It's First Corinthians. So this may actually be talking about a Christian who's just not bearing fruit in their life, um, which uh, may be the case. It doesn't seem clear, though, either. So I'm kind of leaning towards thinking that this parable isn't really meant to weigh in on the issue of can people lose their salvation, personally? Um, the fourth, are they saved? Well, yes, obviously. <laughs> it's like, obviously. So first and, th- first and fourth, obviously not saved, obviously saved. Second and third are a little bit tricky, in my opinion. And my conclusion, personally, is I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and there's one other thing I'll add, which is interesting. In Mark, 
um, the phrase hear, they all hear the word. The first, second, third, and fourth soil all hear the word. But here in the first three soils is in the past tense, the aorist in the Greek. It's called, it just means past tense, right? It's in the past tense. They heard the word. But the fourth soil, the good soil, it's the present tense, which implies they, they're hearing, they're continually hearing the word, which is just interesting. So there's something different about the fourth soil, even in the way they're hearing. Um, I thought that was kind of, just thought I'd share it with you. So here's the main points. The gospel is a revealer of men's hearts. It shows the conditions of our hearts and lives. The word of God does this, period. It reveals our condition. How we respond to the truth of God's word shows us what's going on inside of us. It really does. The sower's the same. The seed is the same. It's the soil that's different. Sometimes even those who are saying, I rejected God because, and they always point at things outside themselves. The truth sometimes is they rejected God because of something in themselves. And that's where they need to start looking to be able to deal with those issues. The problem is people, not the message. So when you're sharing the message, don't stress. The right message shared by a good sower will be rejected by exactly 75% of the people. No, I'm just kidding. There's no ratio. There's no ratio. Some people say this. One in four received the gospel. One in four rejected it. I don't think this is a ratio. Jesus is not exactly one fourth of the people will do this. I, I think that's, I have heard that taught before by a pastor, but I don't think that's the case. Um, I think the next thing for us is this, to recognize that heart issues really matter. Heart issues really matter. My heart issues really matter, and the heart issues of the person hearing me really matters. And I think if I just say it the right way, and if I just have the right, the right case, and if I can just remember what Greg Laurie said at that Harvest Crusade, that one time it was so good, man. And if I could just say it that way. Um, and the truth is that it's a soil thing. It's a soil thing. Now, this doesn't get me off the hook. Like, I can just say anything. I'm to be gracious. I'm to be honest. I'm to be bold. And I'm to share the actual truth of God's word. But I don't need to worry about all those other things so much. Don't stress on it. This is why Mark 4.24 concludes with this stuff. He says, take care what you listen to. He goes, take care what you listen to. Right? Because how you hear is going to be how you're judged in that sense. Um, Luke 8.18 says it as well. Take care how you listen. And if anybody's you're watching this, you're observing this even online, and you're, and you're thinking, I've heard the gospel, I've heard it preached, I've heard it talk, taught to me, and I've been just hard soil. That's why I've rejected it. Well, then now's the time to come inward and say, God, help break up the fallow ground. In fact, that's what, that's what we get in Jeremiah chapter 4, is God tells them, break up the fallow ground. They're hard soil, and they won't receive. And he says, break up the fallow ground. Jesus may have been referring to that. He's showing that sometimes... The rejection of Christ is the fallow ground. So you break up that fallow ground, you till the ground, you go deep into your heart and you expose the issues that you have before God and all of a sudden the bad soil becomes the good soil. That is a wonderful, hopeful thing. Heart issues. Um, I do think we can apply this to our lives today as Christians. Well, like I said earlier, while the soil is about them hearing the original gospel message, so to speak, the kingdom, I find that all the issues I faced when I was not a believer are the same issues I face as a believer because the flesh is still with me. So a heart that was soft can become hard. Soil that was good can get covered in weeds or I can put rocks in there and things have become shallow. And so uh, in prayer, even, even after hearing this message, I recommend take some time in prayer and just pray through any issues that have come up in your heart or mind and trust the Lord to deal with these things. He doesn't tell us this to leave us without hope. He tells us this to direct us in our prayers. Okay, now pray about this. You see this issue, now talk to me about it. So how can we be better soil? Be more receptive. 
um, care, get the weeds out, get the rocks out, um, till the soil, so to speak. The, the idea is just repentance. It's clearing all things out so it's just me and God and I'm totally open to him. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, is it possible that there's another response to the gospel beyond these four? Sure. Why not? I don't, I don't think we need to... It's not like the scientific full display of every possible reaction. But here are the four major ones. That's the point. And we can probably find ourselves all leaning towards being one of these at any given time. And I think that that's healthy for us to do. Uh, yeah. So uh, next week we'll continue uh, working through the parables of Jesus. And I'm excited to do that. I love the parables. I haven't taught them in quite a while. So it's kind of fun to get back into them. And, uh, and we'll pick up where we left off. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the revelation of our hearts as we read these things. And for many of us, even as we're hearing the study and we're thinking about the passage and we're thinking about ourselves and we're seeing where there's weeds or where, or where the, the, the rocks have kept um, the eternal hope of the gospel from going deep in our hearts. We're seeing where we've become cold to not even hear the things that have been said. So we come now and we pray this, Lord, take us right where we are right now as we are. Show us weeds, show us rocks, show us hardness so we can break those things up in our lives. We can yield those things to you and we ask for your help now. Lord, help, help us to be good soil. Help us to be cleared of weeds, rocks, and hardness. That we'd be receptive to the things you're doing. That we would have our hearts set on the eternal kingdom of God and our joy on, in the eternal kingdom of God. So that we could be bearing real fruit of any amount for you and for your glory and for your kingdom, God. We bless your name. We worship you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.